Welcome back to the Sheikhside Theatre. I'm Joanne and I'll be your host for this panel. As per LSE regulations, please allow me to remind you that there are two emergency exits on both sides of the stage. If you hear an alarm, please make your way down to your closest emergency exit. It would also be much appreciated if mobile phones can be put in the silent mode. Moving on, the controversial one-child policy has been a topic of heated debate and will be the focus of this panel today. Without further ado, I would like to introduce our three esteemed speakers, and starting from my far left, the Associate Professor of Social Policy at University of Oxford, Professor Stuart Geetel baston Next we have... Sorry. (laughs) Next up, we have the Professor in the Department of Demography and Center for Population and Development Studies of Renmin University of China, Professor Chen Wei. Finally, the Professor of Global Health at University College London and the moderator of this panel, Professor Therese Heeskith. Right. Um, thank you for all coming back after the break after a quite um, controversial previous session. Um, but this one, I think, is quite controversial as well because we're going to be talking about the ch- re- very recent changes to the very iconic one-child policy I think most of the mainland students in this room will have been affected by the one-child policy in that most of you will be seeing only children. And so your parents have been very deeply affected by what has probably been the most influential single policy, I believe, in world history, in fact, because it has affected 1.3 billion people over a period of 35 years in a very personal way. Now, since October the 29th last year, just three months ago, the policy has now been lifted completely so that everyone in China for the first time is now able to have two children. The point of this panel will be to look a bit at the past, the impacts of the policy, the one-child policy over the past 35 years and look forward to what we can, what we can expect over the next, in the future as the policy has now changed, what influences that will have on, uh, on the future of China economically and in terms of social policy. So I'm very pleased to be able to start with Professor Chen Wei from Ribbon Dasha, um, who will be starting the discussion and we're going to have 15 minute, session, 15 minute speeches and then we're going to have half an hour hopefully for discussion. We hope you'll be able to participate in that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me to this fantastic forum. I've got to talk on the two-child pass in China which just started to implement earlier this year. Uh, my topic is about demographic implications of the two-child policy. Now, first I'll give you an overview of China's demographic changes over the last 60 years. Okay? You can see from this <coughs> table that extraordinary fertility decline, life, t- life expectancy increase, and rising sex ratio births, etc., all those are got extraordinary compared to the rest of the world, and uh, largely because of China's one-child policy. Okay. Now, China is famous for the one-child policy, but the policy is quite complicated, in fact. Okay. Looking at the history of China, we've got a lot of changes of the one-child policy. 
starting from the 1970s, we have longer, later, fewer policy, okay? So later marriage, fewer children, longer birth interval, okay? This is a little longer, fewer. And then at the end of 1970, early 1960, the policy in tightening up to the one-child policy, and the countrywide one-child policy only survived in the early 1940s, okay? And since 1980, uh, 1985, Okay, and this year we have the universal two-child policy for all the couples. Okay, so now for the one-child policy, it is one-child policy in the urban area in our cities. Okay, but for the rural area, it depends. For those farmers who, whose first child is a male, you stop only one child. But for first child a female, you can have a second one. This is an average one and a half child policy. Okay. And at that time, there is a two-child policy for parents who are both come from only child families. Okay? And for the ethnic minority population, there are more than two child policies. Okay? And there's also a uh, spatial limit, at least four years, between the first and second child. Okay? And it's now like abolished in most of the places. Now, this is a population covered by the one-child policy. Actually, only one-third of population covered by one-child policy. And this is a challenge for the transition, okay? Very quickly down to very low fertility. And compared to other East Asia populations, uh, it, it was very high in 1960, 19, early 1970s, but now quite similar compared to Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, etc. And compared to the rest of the world, like UK, of France, Italy, China has a very much uh, rapid decline fertility. Okay. And also comparing the developing world, China is at the bottom line, extraordinary decline fertility. Okay. Now, because of the very rapid decline fertility in one child there are a lot of demographic challenges, okay, very important, uh, great demographic challenges, which are contributing to what is no economic new normal. Uh, the first one is very low fertility. So since the 1990, okay, since 1990, we have increasingly lower level below replacement, uh, implying negative population growth rate in the future, rapidly declining population. Okay, and compared to the developed country, China had a much much lower economic level, but also lower fertility. Okay. And uh, now what's the implication of the very low fertility, okay? If your fertility was 1.3, then in the second generation, population will be 40% less. After 90 years, only 18, uh, 15%. Okay. Sharply declined population, like low fertility. And the United Nations just released its recent population forecast that 
if maintained, China maintained the one-child policy, and the decline population will be the the, the, the lower the lower medium, uh, the lower scenario of the changing population in the future. Now the second challenge is rapid aging population. Okay, now the proportion of people is not high now, but compared to other countries, it, it will be very rapid in the next 20, 30 years. Okay, now the size of of older people is astonishing. For example, in 2005. 100 million, 10 years later, 200 million, and 2036, uh, 300 million. Very large uh, size of old people. And the percentage is a one th uh, not one third, one fourth or even over. And this picture shows you the increasing share of older people. Okay? So if you're looking at the the upper line, which is aged 60 plus, it would be more than one third of the population by, nine, by 2050. Okay? Even for the very old people, aged 80 plus, it will become rapidly increasing to very high percentage. And demographers typically use what we call age pyramid to portray the structure population. So this is the pyramid and the shadowed area is 2000, China, and the bar are the uh, 2040. So the old people move moving to top and getting very old population. And we're looking at Shanghai, 2040. Most of the population are very old, Shanghai. And Beijing similar. So most of the population is very old in 2040, okay? And the next great challenge is very high sex imbalance. Okay? Now, this is a, a very a negative consequence of the one-child policy. And uh, the one-half-child policy. Okay? Because a lot of farmers, when they had a first child to be a female, then they tried uh, a best to get a male, a male sounds. Okay? And this uh, involved a lot of uh, ultrasound exam sex it, sex selective abortions, etc. Now, there are some estimates that from 1985 up to now, roughly 40 million young male bachelors, okay, 40 million young bachelors who will be very difficult to find wives within China. Okay. <clears throat> now, this picture shows you the rising sex ratio of births in China. So, so it's quite, it's quite uh, around 105, which is a normal level across the country of the world. Okay. Then as soon as China implemented one-child policy in early 1980s, sex ratio went up and astonishingly high at 120, which is the highest in the world. Highest in the world. Okay. Now, this is not the only case in China, but also occurring in, in, in South Korea, in Taiwan, for example. South Korea went up in 1990, then came down to normal level. But mainland China still going up, still keeping up very high level. And looking at the, we call parity, which is birth order, okay, so couples did not select their first child, okay? And from the second, third, and higher, 
that we can choose the sex of, of the second, third. Chan, I maybe move on to some of your later slides about yeah. the two-child policy so and the implications of the change in the law. Okay. Because I'm aware you've just, we've got five minutes only left, or five minutes. Okay, so. yeah. Because um, I think that's, to, for today, we want to kind of focus on that particularly. Also, dividend declining, okay, the large work, the working population decreasing, labor shortage. Uh, now, there's a lot of debate on why changes one child policy. So, there are three uh, different arguments. For example, no change, tightening, or even uh, loosening up. Now, uh, why no change? Some people, uh, some scholars believe that because fertility is not, the actual level is not known, can be as high as 2.3. Okay? And uh, other people, they still want to tighten up the policies, so extend one child policy to all area, to rural area, okay? They, but uh, their argument is to adopt a negative population growth, okay? And uh, most of the government officials, scholars, this is to reduce the policy from one child to two child policy, and which will uh, eventually arrive stable uh, zero growth populations, okay? Now, so the final uh, policy option is a unified policy for China as a whole, but it could be different timing, getting timing. And the one-child policy transformed to a selective child policy and a universal two-child policy. Now, the universal two-child policy is applied to all couples, regardless of their place of residence, regardless of their region, ethnicity, but still, there are some uh, birth interval requirement in some provinces, especially in Henan, for example, the biggest province in China. And uh, now, what is time to try policy? Okay, and demographically, we can see that the size of the uh, women at childbearing ages start decline. Okay, and the size of working age population start decline and popular age start to speed up. And economy start new normal, new normal. And also, very importantly, a political commitment 35 years ago, government, okay? So these are the reasons why China uh, initiated two-child policy right now. Now, for the consequences, demographic consequences, now, the two-child policy will immediately result a sudden increase in fertility, okay? Upcoming baby boom in the next few years. But in the long run, fertility will still decline. Now, I have calculated the coming baby boom. So uh, the calculation is quite simple, involving those number of women who have only one child, and their idea, their intention, their, their intention want to have a second child and put them together, we produce two to birds in the next few years. And then we got timing of the birds in the next five years, they produce annual number of birds. Okay? And this is the age structure of the uh, woman with only one child okay, in 2014, which is data available for me to calculate. And uh, we start from 2016, 
There are 91 million women covered by two-child policy, 91 million. And for those 91 million, half are over 40, which is quite old. Okay, it's quite old. So the policy could be have uh, little impact because very old age structure of the population covered by the universal two-child policy. Okay? Now this is the intention of the second batch. So for, for the very old, for the 35, 40, only 10%, even lower than 10% they want two children, second. But for the very young, more than 60. Okay? So putting them together, applying to the that population, produce only 20% of the female they plan to second child. So after calculation, for the medium scenario, 28% want to have second best, there will be 3.4 million extra second births in the next five years, average, okay, 3 million. Not so big, not so big. Now, translating into fertility, so in the next few years, we have a bunch of fertility because of the uh, fertility increase, uh, increase of the births, and in the long run, fertility continues to climb to a low, level lower, as low as 1.7, for example. And the highest one, it could be in 2018, it's about 2.2, 2.3, roughly at the replacement level, okay? And package forecasting, okay? So no policy change, and with the two-child policy, there's a differences of several uh, uh, 16 million people, okay, differences. And uh, I will move to the final slides. So the two-child policy. Now, the Chinese government is guided by this theory, which is called population balance. Uh, we need to quantity, quality, structure, and as response to demographic challenges, and carry out political commitment, addressing the new normal. And in fact, very important, most of the people in China want two children. Okay? And uh, about the impact policy, I personally believe it will not be very big because fertility is largely determined in China by social economic development, not by policy. Okay? And in fact, the rural area, the vast majority of rural people are actually having two children. Okay? And uh, very important also, we need to have other social policy to make the two-child policy effect, more effective. Okay? Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Stuart, over to you. Um, should Gifle Batten to tell us to, I don't know whether you agree with all that or whether you're going to. I agree with most of that. <laughs> um, so uh, good afternoon. The problem with being um, second, uh, the junior partner, to, the, to be the associate professor as opposed to the full professor, is that, of course, the full professor has already said most of what I'm going to say, which is <laughs> always, which is, my, which is life, I suppose. But um, anyway, well, let's make a start. So the, what I'm trying to do in, in my talk here, I'm going to base this around the themes which come out of a, of a, of a newspaper article in the China Daily, which came out Stuart, uh, just stay a bit near the, near the mic. Sorry. Stay, stay I, close, so, I wander, around. wander around too much. It's my nervous energy. Um, 
And so this uh, reports the, the recent policy change. And I'm going to pick out some little bits and pieces here. So in part of it, it says, it's talking about the scrapping of the one-child policy, uh, which has been in place since the late 1970s. Another bit of the article, as, uh, as we've already heard, implies that uh, the total fertility rate of uh, China, which is now, according to this newspaper, 1.5, depending on who you talk to. Of course, it could be 1.2, 1.3, 1.6. This makes quite a big difference when we're talking about nearly 1.5 billion people, but there we are. Um, and then a projection that the fertility rate is going to jump up to 2 or 2.1. That this policy is going to add 30 million workers, very confident, um, and that it will help ease the challenges of an ageing society. Okay? So that's the context. That's what this is saying. This is, the, pop, this is the, the image which is being projected of the two-child policy. That we're ending the one-child policy. It will bring about a rapid increase in fertility, which in turn will produce, I don't know, 10, 15, 30 million workers, the size of a medium-sized European country, and will tackle the ageing population. You know, I'm not entirely convinced by that actual narrative. So what I want to do today is try and offer something, a slight reinterpretation of this. So as we've already heard, of course, we talk about the one-child policy, but actually this is a very misleading way to characterise the situation in China for the last 30 years or so. Um, in fact, you know, this idea that it's been a national policy since 1980, therefore everybody by definition should only be allowed to have uh, one child, that the fertility rate across China should be one um, from 1980 to the present day. And of course, as, um, as we've already heard, there's been tremendous, uh, many, many uh, reforms, both at the national level but also at the, at the local level. Of course, it's important to realise that a lot of family planning restrictions, which I, or I call it rather than one-child policy, are changed and determined at the local level. And we've, we've, this is a, 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 a map going back to the late 1990s. So this is the policy fertility of each prefecture. Okay? So the popular image would be it should be one everywhere. Everyone's allowed want to have one child. But the reality is, of course, this tremendous difference going from one up to three and a half, okay, depending on different characteristics in different prefectures. So this is not the watershed moment that it's portrayed to be. Yeah? This is not the end of this hegemonic system and a move towards a two-child policy. Although, I will say, of course, I think that it is a huge improvement in the clarity of conditionality and who is entitled to have a second child. And it's very important when we come back to talk about uh, uh, sex ratios and gender imbalance. So the other way we can look at what might happen is what happened in, pre in this previous reforms that we've already heard about. Now, to go, if I haven't got the time now, but to go back to that map I, you saw earlier, in the majority of those prefectures, fertility was lower than what it should have been. Okay, than what it was allowed to be under the course of these different reforms. So that meant that people were not having as many children as they were entitled to do as these reforms went through. Now, of course, we can go back a couple of years and we have this formal easing. Uh, the, this was from 2013, November 2013, with this new partial lifting of the policy. And we have these very strongly worded um, uh, uh, headlines. I, if I were a headline writer, I would do that, but that wouldn't, sell, that wouldn't really sell any newspapers. 
Um, but this is, this is the kind of major change that we saw um, occurring a few years ago. Uh, this is typical academic, you know, no one, that's why no one reads our articles, because we do this uh, self-censorship self all the time. And so there was an expectation under these reforms that we will be looking at 10 or 12 million extra births over three or four uh, years. Now, what actually happened was that during 2014... Although over a million people applied for the license or the certificate to have the second child, there were only about 470,000 more births. So this is much fewer than anticipated. However, uh, this is a, um, a quote from a famous Chinese uh, demographer in Tianjin who said that the, this, of these 470,000 extra births, this big increase in the n number of births last year was caused by a series of moves to relax the family planning restrictions. Okay, so it's all about that even though we've got an extra half a million births, that's because of this change in the family planning system. Well, actually, it's strange that because what we saw between 2013 was just a continuation of a trend. Yeah? It wasn't necessarily a particular outlier. But then when we actually look at last year, the number of births dropped. Go on, take your picture. Sorry, that's all right. So we want to take the picture. Come on, just take the picture of the graph. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so next year, so, so last year, the number of births dropped. Yeah? So again, this is not really a clear uh, indicator. Now, of course, we have to be very careful because the number of births has got as much to do with the population A structure with the population age structure as it has of anything else. So, but what we've got to be careful of saying is that there is clearly no clear direction visible. There's not been this zoom of a takeoff of, of, uh, of births over the last two years. And this is because of this false view held by many that the family planning restrictions in China, operators, depending on whether you're kind of engineer you are, uh, as, a, uh, as a kind of pressure valve or a dam which is holding back people's desire to have more children than, they were, than they're entitled to do. Yeah? And, of course, the thing is, for those of us who study fertility preferences and fertility in China, these, the, the, what we saw over the last two years uh, after the last reform was not really much of a surprise because we know that many parents in surveys say they would ideally like to have two children. Most people say they would ideally like to have two children, but they intend to have only one, even when they're allowed to have more. And we can see, this is uh, from one of my uh, colleagues in uh, Beijing, uh, of a number of surveys uh, which look at the ideal number of children from, but with adult and rural populations. Now, of course, in Europe, when we have these questions it's almost universal to be at least two, right? But what we see in China is, in urban areas, the stability around one and a half children, okay? So many people saying want to have one child, many people saying they'd like to have two. But I think what's really interesting is this convergence between rural and urban areas over time, that even in some of the poorest parts of China, we're, still, we're now seeing uh, an ideal family. More and more couples say that I, in an even even if I'm allowed to have more than one child, I might be happy to only have one. 
Now, of course, there's a big question about ideal family sizes. If somebody from the Family Planning Commission comes round wearing a green hat and says, you know, how many children would you like to have? Yes, just one, please. Thank you very much. That's fine. Um, the reality, of course, you know, so you've got to be, we've got to be slightly careful on how we interpret things. But then, so this is from Jiangsu province. And I think this kind of shows the problem that the Chinese government might face in terms of uh, uh, this idea of, 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 a, of the one-child or policy as a dam. So we can see here, firstly, one, uh, oh, more than half of the respondents, and these are all uh, women who are allowed to have a second child. Okay? So more than half state an ideal of one. But 44% say, that, yeah, ideally I'd like to have two children. Okay? Now of those, 70% have got one child. So they're the ones who this policy is going to affect, okay? about them being able to, or most likely to have another child. But of those... The majority say, I'd like to have another child, but I don't really think I'm going to. The reality is I'm not going to do that. And the reasons for this come up over and over again. Okay? And they will be, I'm sure, familiar to many of you here. Thinking about the high cost of living, particularly cost of housing, the cost of education, the impact on career development, particularly for women, uh, when you have an unequal distribution of childcare and household chores... Um, the notion to, uh, with very low, low mortality, you can invest more in the success of one child. We, get, we t know a lot about fragile families, the difficulties, when we think about left-behind children, the difficulties particularly for the floating population. Families who have to, uh, couples who have to care for their own parents. And so you have the 4 2 one uh, dilemma, you know. So you've got two people, two parents looking after two sets of parents and a child. The idea of adding another child to that is obviously very tricky. In a system characterised by relatively little social security, social protection. So if you lose your job, if you get sick, your protection, your backup is, is, relatively, is going to be relatively limited. Okay? And then finally... One thing which, of course, we've not really discussed is whether or not the, the one-child policy, purely defined, has been too successful. Because one-child families have been privileged for the last 30 years and have been told that this is the best type of family to have, this is the best, you know, uh, this is the model, this is the state-sanctioned model, and then to flip that around and say, yeah, we've chats gone now, uh, that being put, kind of the psychological normalisation of that, we just don't know. Um, now, as I said, if you look in different parts of the world, you would see this rural, uh, so in different parts of China, there has been a rural convergence. But really, if we're talking about some of these issues here, many of these will be most keenly felt in urban areas. Yeah? But of course, it's in urban areas where this policy lifting is likely to have the most effect. So the people who, are most gen who will be most affected by this move to a two-child policy are the ones who are least likely to want to have a second child. So that's why I think the, limit, the, the effect of this is going to be limited. So I'll say that the demographic responses to this policy are likely to be muted and that the, the fundamental reasons for low fertility need to be addressed. And I think the Chinese government will, will really see that it's much easier to get fertility to fall than it is to get it to increase. We see this all across East and Southeast Asia. But actually, the thing is, I mean, I knew this, 
And I thought this was going to happen. So surely the Chinese government knew this was going to happen. They weren't <laughs> expecting some... I mean, look at me. You know, I mean, I, I could work this out. So the Chinese government must have known there wasn't going to be a massive baby boom. So in that sense, actually, politically, this policy move was really smart. Because the, the chances are it's probably not going to do that much. But the family planning restrictions are increasingly unpopular. They're increasingly unnecessary. It's popular at the micro level, at the individual level. And, of course, so therefore, politically, it's a very wise decision. So we can get lots of nice, happy families like this, <laughs> cuddling little sisters and brothers. Isn't this a wonderful, isn't this a wonderful thing? So in the last two minutes and 33 seconds, I will just give you my kind of two cents worth um, about where I think... Um, uh, policy, family, fertility and demography in China might go. Firstly, uh, I think that the Chinese state needs to forget about manipulating the fertility rate. Okay? This is not, it's just not going to work. People, you know, that, that, that I, I honestly believe that if we tackle those underlying causes of low fertility, fertility you know, will probably rise, actually. Um, but, these, but by manipu directly manipulating this, this is not going to do very much. Instead, there needs to be a concentration on managing the existing resources that are in place in terms of uh, demographic resources, in terms of productivity, further ref reform of the HUCO system to maximize uh, labor uh, mobility, uh, labor force participation, and formalization of the economy. And, of course, uh, Wang Fei-an of the uh, Family Planning Commission says that here, buried in the report, which is actually the, the most important thing in this newspaper report, is this idea that the quality of the population rather than the quantity matters most in the current situation if we're thinking about productivity. But, of course, the thing is, is that there's this panic around the ageing population and the future ageing uh, and the, the, the rapid growth of ageing in China. But, of course... In many ways, this, we can, I think we're conceptualizing a lot of this complete in, a, in, in a wrong way. Firstly, we're projecting the current industrial model into the future. Well, China in 50 years probably won't have the same industrial model as it's, been, as it's secured growth. On the, but it can't do. We saw from the, the keynote this morning this idea of wage inflation just being in the last... It, it can't be sustainable. So the model, the, the, the demography is changing, so the model has to change as well. And, of course, many of the ageing concerns, this panic about the ageing population, is based around European problems about which don't exist in China, you know, about, about particular systems or pension systems or long-term care systems. And the last thing I want to leave you with is this. This idea of saying, you know, that the number of people, 700 million, the number of people aged 15 to 59 that China's labour market is expected to have by 2050... But in 2050, why today are we still thinking about 15 to 59 as the labour market? And, and thinking that everybody aged over 60 is just dependent on the labour market and is a drag, yeah? This doesn't make any sense. And particularly if we're going to go 30 or 40 years into the future, because it's based on this fundamental misconceptualization that older people, defined in this way as being 60 or 65, are dependent, are a drag on society, yeah? And this is not right. This is completely wrong. In that, you know, we would say, when is, and, and we look about changes over time, yeah? And we can say, when is a 60-year-old 60, 60 not a 60-year-old? Well, we would say that 50 years ago, a 60-year-old will be completely different to a 60-year-old today. But why aren't we saying the same thing for 50 years' time? 
in terms of mortality, health, longevity, active ageing, work, grandparenting, civil society. This is a completely different ballpark. This is a completely different system. So then my, con- my conclusions, were, which I'll take 10 seconds... Uh, firstly, the two-child policy, I think, is likely to have little long-term demographic impact for raw numbers. However, it was very important at the individual level for couples to have the right to have a second child. It's very important for uh, gender uh, uh, and the sex ratio, and it will be important to show ongoing reform of the family planning system. The second thing, and this is related to this, is low fertility is now a choice. Uh, limited childbearing in China is now a voluntary activity rather than one prescribed by the state. And until uh, though the reasons for voluntarily limiting childbearing are tackled, then fertility, I'm sure, will not increase. And this is because, as one of my colleagues from the Netherlands suggests, society gets the fertility rate they deserve. And if it's very difficult and it's very challenging to have children, people will have fewer children. Simple as that. But then the final thing is that actually we've got all this wrong. All of our focus is on babies, whereas actually we need to think about society as a whole and particularly how we rethink this ageing crisis. And it's going to require some really joined-up policymaking to think about changes across the life course and not just thinking about parents or babies or pensioners. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, thank, thank you very much, both speakers. Um, just to say one thing, I, I understand the reason why the birth rate was low last year is because of the year of the goat. Mm. And I know, and I actually personally know, I personally know two people who were allowed to have children last year and have, been, have postponed them because they do not want goat children. I think there may be a blip this year because people have been waiting. So <laughs> that's my two cents worth on that. Okay, so let's um, go to the, um, any questions. Yes, they're starting here. We've got some mics around. Who's got the mics? Gentleman there. Come get a mic to here, please. Here. Somebody, somebody, give a mic. Hello. Yeah, Bernard Casey from London School of Economics. Also, once upon a time of St. John's College, Oxford. That's just one for Stuart. Um, <laughs> I sort of agree with some of what has been said, but I don't agree with the fact that ageing is... There is no problem. There is a real problem of ageing societies in China. That is a real and immediate problem that is not going to disappear. And what I am interested in is the responses which are being developed to actually cope with that ageing population, that frail old population which already exists. And here we actually do see a considerable level of activity, particularly in large municipalities who have got the problem in front of them, to actually develop and to look to European systems and European solutions because they recognize that their problem is a shared problem and that something has got to be done. I wondered if you could comment upon that. Professor Chun, do you want to comment on Stuart? Yeah, okay. Um, thanks very much. No, I, I, that's not, it's not fair to say that I said there's no problem with ageing at all. That's not what I said at all. Um, what I'm saying is that the way that 
ageing is conceptualised as being just a, a, as a set of these kind of demographic parameters and that the boundaries are not, being, are not, changing, uh, are not changed in the past and in the future, I think that is wrong. And that seeing, uh, just having more babies and, more f and increasing fertility as a solution to the ageing crisis is wrong. That's all I'm saying, okay? In terms of the, the China needs desperately to develop proper, decent, adequate pension systems. It needs to develop proper, decent, adequate long-term care. Um, it needs to develop um, um, massive improvements in palliative care um, and, in, um, um, uh, and also in terms of reconciling the family ob obligation towards older people. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And that will require significant capital investment as well as potentially a private a deregulation of the private system as well. And, so, I mean, there's no doubt that ageing in China is a massive problem going forward, sure. But it's a policy problem. It's about social policy and not about demography. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Professor Chen, do you okay. want to add to that? Okay, the, uh, agree with you. Uh, ageing itself is not a problem. When putting ageing in a certain context, it becomes a problem, okay? And the major issue in China is the uh, institutional things. It's social policy, social security policy, uh, only covered in some big cities, okay, not in rural areas, not for migrant population. Mm -hmm. And this is a big problem. Not agent itself, not a problem, I think. Okay, any more questions? Uh, who's there? Sorry. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you. It was a fantastic panel, very uh, interesting. Um, one thing that always kind of struck me when looking at China's fertility decline is that the vast majority of it happened before the one-child policy even came into effect. And that after the one-child policy came into effect in 1980, you saw kind of like a stagnation in fertility for the next 10 years or so. Um, given that kind of, uh, you know, those demographic statistics, is, is there a debate in China or outside of China, just in demography in general, as far as the actual policy effectiveness of the, of the Wan Xiao, the earlier uh, fertility policies and the one-child policy and kind of what policymakers could learn from that. Okay, now the one-child policy brings down fertility very rapidly, which is the most, uh, most rapid, maybe uncompared rest of the world. Uh, for the one-child policy, I believe, it was successful in the big cities because most of these urban residents are ha having one child, actually. But for the vast rural area, they're actually having two. The majority of rural farmers are having two children. So the effectiveness of one-child policy are limited in the larger cities. Uh, even in tourist towns or small cities, still, people still are getting more than one child. Okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. That's your question. Uh, uh, here first, maybe. Yes, and stripes. Ms. Stripes, yes. Hi. Um, both speakers, actually all of you mentioned that there's a success in the city of the one-child policy and there's a different time for relaxation of the policy in ru rural and urban areas. And uh, all of you mentioned it's very important to keep the quality, not only the quantity of uh, the population under control, given the resource imbalance of rural and urban education, uh, like aging population care, uh, do you think in the future it's a problem for the Chinese government to concern about the quality of its population in the future? Stuart, do you want to take that? Or? Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, 
I think that... Um, how can I put this? I think that the... Um, Thinking about rural and urban necessarily is, in some ways, again, a bit of a misconceptualization because we see such high levels of, um, of internal migration as well that the, that the, the likelihood of, of, of individuals staying, you know, of rural populations staying rural populations for their entire life obviously is becoming less and less and as more opportunities uh, develop towards. And of course, and again, when we think about urbanization and migration, we often think about this kind of track, you know. We think about uh, big cities in the east, but of course, there's actually a lot more nuance than that. It's about the development of smaller towns, of second and third, lower small, uh, tier cities as well. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think that's very important. And in terms of quality, um, I, I still think that there's a long way to go in terms of the reform of the of the examination system in China and and, and how that. Uh, and how different people in different parts of the country are penalised or, or given an advantage over others, and I think that that. But I, I can see this being a as we see in further Hukou reform in the future. I can actually see that being another way that would change that, that would actually be reformed and, and may uh, create a, a difference there. Can I just come back to this question on how it, the importance of the one-child policy of what it actually did? Now, to a certain degree, of course, there's an argument. Well, we don't know. I mean, there's no counterfactual. Um, if we were to look at other countries around the world that started massive family planning programs in the 1970s, like and, and, uh, in, particularly in Asia, like Taiwan, like Korea, like Thailand, in the 70s we saw tremendous um, declines in fertility, and they carried on through the 80s, 90s, and today. Now, I can't, I can't envisage a situation where fertility decline would have stopped in 1980. I'm sure because you have continued urbanization, economic development, economic growth, education, uh, access to family planning, all the things that we know are linked to lower fertility, and I'm quite convinced that that same trajectory would have carried on in China regardless of the one-child policy. The one-child policy may have accelerated it and put certain uh, and accelerated in particular areas. And, of course, as I said before, in terms of cities... Yes, it had the most effect in cities, but cities would be the ones that are most likely to be at the forefront of having lower, ch of, of lower fertility anyway. And so that's why I get annoyed about this. It stopped 400 million births because I don't think it did at all. It's controversial anyway. Oh, yeah. That figure's highly, yeah. Co yeah, highly yeah. controversial. Yeah. Okay. Uh, more questions? Just uh, guess. You, sorry, sorry, you had your hand up before. I know. I saw that. Yeah. Hi, um, as a question for the um, both of you, I just want to hear your opinions on this. Um, I'm wondering how the, um, the one-child policy through accelerating this demographic transition has um, helped to uh, improve uh, women's status in China uh, and the, uh, or, or making changes to the gender, gender relations in general. Uh, or um, when you think about uh, the double burdens or um, aging women, I mean... Aging population plus the women's surplus in uh, in their longevity, um, or I mean, when you when you think about these things, does it has it actually helped their um, social status and all that? Um, do I, yeah, yeah. maybe you take that start, start, start with that one. Okay, yeah, I think the biggest factors contributing to the improvement of state in China is fertility decline compared to other education other things. So. 
at average in 1960, women have average three children, but now only one or one and a half, one, two. So the time saved, the energy, the career development, all contributed to the state improvement. And over the last decade, China's college expansion policy, okay, very rapid increase in college education. Uh, people enrolling in the university increased from only six, uh, uh, translated into Chinese unit, uh, only uh, one million, rapid increase into six million, okay? The change of the, the rise of the uh, people enrolled in the university. And, uh, and in many universities, more female students than males, okay? Um, but uh, of all, fertility decline, okay, the curve development, they have time, they put their self-development in more important than uh, childbearing. And this is transition fertility, make a great contribution to improvement when we stayed in China. Yeah, just, I mean, it's a very smart question because you basically you answered your own question, I think, in some ways there. I mean, you, you, I think that, that you would, of course, see certain uh, significant improvements in, in, in the status of women, as we've already heard, but on the other hand, increase this double burden on, the, on there as well. But, I mean... <laughs> I suppose it just depends whether or not you think of things in a socioeconomic way or you, you take a step back and you say, well, you know, China's got the highest rates of sex-selective abortion in the world, pretty much. So that's not a really a good indicator of the status of women. And the, the family planning restrictions, as, uh, as our moderator has uh, written about with her colleagues at UCL, has played a not insubstantial role in, in, in potentially in shaping these, uh, these highly skewed sex ratios. Now, it may turn out that actually the status of women now, in an ironic macroeconomic way, has become higher because there are, far too, there are too many uh, men relative to women. So the market value of women, if we want to think of like an economist, is relatively high because there's a shortage. You have supply and demand, and there's a shortage. Then there's another issue as well, which I know I'm going to get into trouble for, and I never say this, is in terms of the status of women, is whether we think about reproductive rights and what that actually means in terms of the rights of women to have the number of children that they want to do. But I'm not going to say anything more on that. And men. And, and, men. and men, absolutely. Men have yes. children yes. too, yes. I've heard. I, yes, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm told, yeah, exactly. Um, but, yeah. Uh, just at one point on that, and I'm not supposed to say this because I'm a chair, but um, I think if the, at one of the, the group that have probably benefited most from the one-child policy possibly are single girls of urban parents and because all resources yeah. in the household then are diverted to one child. I suspect many g women in this room are beneficiaries of the one-child policy in the sense that they are only girls of families who can afford to send them to the UK to study. <laughs> Had to say that, sorry. Uh, uh, there's one behind and I'll come to you too. Sorry, you had your hand up. Yes. Sorry, there. Yes. I'll come to you in a minute. I think I agree with you that the one health policy you said that have significant influence in everyone uh, from China in this room. And uh, personally, my parents, actually, they do not plan to have any children when, and everyone was treating them like freaks, so I was warned. Personally, I would not influenced by this one-child policy, but now I feel like I will be influenced by this two-child policy uh, because uh, I think that uh, there will be a further reduce of the competitiveness of the female in the career development due to this policy. And uh, first of all, I will lose my 
vacation for the marrying very late. In the past, I will have 15 days. Now I won't have three days. As even if it's not a big deal, and secondly, I will be influenced by this policy because my boss will suppose that I maybe have a second child. Uh, I, I do not have any child yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so, you, you, so the possibility of that you will have two child and you will definitely devote much less time on your work. It definitely influences your promotion. And if I was trying to inc recruiting some uh, fresh graduates, I have two candidates, one is a boy, and the other one will have two maternity leave and uh, endless hospital visits, parents' meetings. Which one would you choose? I would choose the boy. So I think in the long run, that's influenced the competitiveness of the female in the career development. And one of my colleagues is, also, is already facing that challenges. He, she has to decide to have the second child or to have the promotion because the promotion may be came like in one or two years, which is the best time for her to have her second child. So he's in a dilemma, and her choice apparently is uh, he, she will not have that second, second child. So what's her comment? Uh, um, I think this question is for Mr. Chen. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this is a big challenge, I think. Now, social, other social policy is more important for providing more child care facilities, uh, to have a uh, policy for paid maternal leave for two years, for example. Uh, these are all being considered by Chinese government. We're proposing some policy suggestions because the two-child policy, if the Chinese government wants to be, have a successful two-child policy, it must be supported by other social policies to make it a uh, success. You have grandparents to help out, which is what we don't have, <laughs> in my experience. Um, you know, so just to say that. But okay. Um, yes. So thank you for that. Um, just one. You had something. You, yes, you had something. You've been waiting to talk. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I have a question uh, to Chen Wei, Professor. Uh, you talked about the the predict there's a second baby boom uh, in the next uh, five years, three years. And uh, I also read some white paper, white book by Chinese government, and uh, I know there's some data. And I talked about this kind of the prediction with Dr. Ken Deng, he's in another conference as well, and he said that he, do, he does not believe it. He thinks the, the data is made up some, to some, can, some, some extent. So I just want to ask, for you, like you work in the university in China, and uh, do you know how do you think about this the data and the reality, the choose of the data, how it's constructed, and what can be reflected by the government in terms of the uh, predictions. And also the one land trend, he's not, he's not secure anymore. <laughs> and it, how, how, what, what does that imply for, for all your predictions and uh, policy makings in China? Yeah. Mm. Uh, before the government implemented two-child policy, we did a lot of research involving the modeling the forecasting population, okay? Now, the data quality is a big issue in China. Uh, in, in China's census data, there are a lot of report, unreporting of births, for example. Uh, in the 2010 census, we had about, uh, roughly calculated, uh, 20 million births unreported, okay? 20 million unreported <laughs> under age 10, okay? And uh, when we compare this uh, age structure with education data for students from primary school, okay? 
And from compared with HUCO data, uh, people under age 10 in HUCO uh, recalls, they are consistently larger than the population uh, from a census. Okay? So when doing projection modeling, we need to consider this. And the Chinese government, they tried to uh, look at the, 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 the maximum uh, level of the baby boom. Uh, they need to be involved in the economic de development planning. Uh, at the maximum possibility, how large will the baby boom in the next few years? So we create some range of the prediction, lower, medium, high. And this is a possibility of the future change. And uh, uh, this research, this data, uh, supported the government to uh, implement the two-child policy. Okay, yeah. Okay, thanks. Uh, I think we've got, we've got time for one more, one very quick question. Yes, your, yes, yeah. Uh, hi, thanks very much for the talks. Um, uh, Stuart mentioned that the Chinese government is fully aware of the uh, effectiveness of this policy. I just wonder how much is the Chinese government uh, aware of how serious are they to address the institutional answers to accommodate the consequences of the aging society in terms of pension reforms and health reforms? Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I think that in terms of uh, those social policy priorities, I mean, I think that they are. I, th I think there is an awareness that, that these do need to be uh, tackled, um, and that um, uh, pension reform is 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 a quite high up on the agenda. Um, in terms of long term, I mean, other issues. For, I think long term care and palliative care, I think, is probably quite low down on the agenda. However, on the on in between, if you're thinking of social care, of course, we're now seeing the training of. How many million is it? Two million social workers over the next uh, five years or so. You know, so, so social work as a profession, the development of social care is really um, travelling in the right direction. So, I mean, on those kind of issues, uh, that's uh, that's going to be very, very important. And, and I think also, as I say, we'll see increased um, um, activity in the private sector as well, because of course it's important to remember that with extremely high, and this is another issue which is never considered really when you're talking about the aging population, of course, is that saving rate, savings rates in China are extraordinarily high, which is completely different in some ways to, to other countries which have, which have seen very rapid population aging. So the capacity for many Chinese uh, older people to be able to support themselves and to invest in their own um, um, uh, later life is of course much different and so there is a certain element as well where we need to take stock of these kind of cultural differences as well uh, in terms of personal assets and housing and so on and that's again so a classic example in the private sector would be the changes in reverse mortgages where you would draw down the assets on your home, you sell it back to the bank, and then, uh, you know, you... I mean, I think these are a terrible idea, actually, I have to say, but this is just one example of, of how, you know, it's a, just a, it, this would never really took off in, in Europe, but we can, we can see in other parts of Asia how this is really growing as a way to draw down on your assets. But I, I think that the last thing, I mean, it's an interesting thing about the family planning system, um, I mean, I said that the government, I, I do think that the government knew there wasn't going to be a massive baby boom and that not everybody who was entitled to have a second child would do that. 
and, and in some ways, I think in terms of fertility, that ship has sailed. I don't think that this is a really big issue, a big concern for the government anymore. And you can see this in the Family Planning Commission that much more of an emphasis now is on migration and on, on maximising uh, internal migrants and, and the population that's there already as, and, and ma maximising their demographic capacity rather than creating new, uh, new uh, citizens. Did you, did you want to send Okay, that's, we've, we've finished then. Now that's our time up. Um, I think what, what's been said today we, it's all speculation. We actually don't know for sure what's going to happen. We don't know if there's been a big We don't know what it's going to be like in the next you know, 10, 20 years. We don't know what the situation regarding the ageing population, the government's response to it will be. So watch this space. We're going to see how we're watching the future next, over the next few decades. Thank you. Thank you, speakers, for your insights and interesting discussions. We will now have a one-hour lunch break until the next set of parallel panels begin at 1.35. Light refreshments are available outside, so please exit the theatre via the main entrance at the back. Thank you.